This week, Judge Swain confirms Puerto Rico plan of adjustment, Cineworld appeals $1.2 billion Canadian damage judgment from terminated Cineplex acquisition, J. Alex Rico claims against McKinsey resurrected. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's Deep Dive, Reorg Senior Legal Analyst Kevin Eckhart joins us to discuss recent developments in the Toys R Us creditor litigation and how they relate to broad shifts in the landscape of Delaware corporate law and third-party releases. It's Friday, January 21st. On Tuesday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain confirmed the plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth, ERS, and PBA Title III debtors and entered related findings of fact and conclusions of law. In the findings of fact, Judge Swain said that with the incorporation of certain specified revisions, the plan meets the confirmation requirements of PROMESA and doesn't violate the Constitution. Judge Swain urged the people of Puerto Rico to, quote, use their resources and voices well. And she also urged those who govern and oversee Puerto Rico to, quote, listen to those voices, to make wise choices, and explain to them well, and lead Puerto Rico to a better, brighter, and more vibrant future of growth and economic stability. During a press conference Tuesday, PROMESA oversight board officials discussed the remaining steps needed for the plan to go effective by a March 15th deadline, and also said that they are prioritizing completing the debt restructurings of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority and the Puerto Rico Highway and Transportation Authority during 2022. In a status report filed with the Title III Court on Wednesday evening, the oversight board said it's working toward proposing a plan of adjustment for PREPA by March 31, but acknowledged that outside factors could push the filing date into the second quarter. In a Wednesday interview with Reorg, Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority Executive Director Omar Marrero said the government will do all that is required for the Commonwealth Plan to take effect by the March 15th deadline and also said the Commonwealth is committed to completing all pending debt restructurings this year, including PREPA, HTA, and the University of Puerto Rico. Marrero also expressed support for the current PREPA restructuring support agreement but acknowledged a lack of support from the legislature for legislation required to execute the RSA. UK movie chain Cineworld on January 12th appealed the Superior Court of Ontario's December 14th judgment awarding Cineplex damages of 1.237 billion Canadian for breach of contract. The breach relates to Cineworld's decision in June 2020 to terminate an agreement to acquire Cineplex. Among other claims, Cineworld asserts the trial judge, Justice Barbara Conway, erred in her interpretation of the arrangement agreement or, in the alternative, failed to accurately calculate lost synergies. Cineworld argues that the judge failed to give effect to the words of the ordinary course covenant of the arrangement agreement, which requires Cineplex to continue operating the ordinary course until the merger closed. The judge had held that the covenant permitted deviations from past practice in response to an outbreak of illness, namely the COVID-9 pandemic. Cineworld argues that there was no exception permitting Cineplex to deviate from the ordinary course on account of an outbreak of illness or on account of any other event defined as a material adverse event. Cineworld also argues the court made an error of law in finding that the material adverse event clause of the arrangement agreement addressed the risk of a pandemic and allocated that systemic risk to Cineworld, and asserts that the express language of the agreement allocated the risk of a pandemic during the interim period to the seller, Cineplex. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals issued an opinion on Wednesday resurrecting J. Alex's federal RICO and RICO conspiracy claims against various McKinsey defendants. The opinion vacated District Judge Jesse Furman's ruling that it had dismissed Alex's claims with prejudice and rejected Judge Furman's conclusion that the connection between McKinsey's alleged behavior and the resulting potential harm to Alex was sufficiently attenuated to require dismissal of the case. The lawsuit was based on an alleged scheme by McKinsey to harm bankruptcy advisory competitors by securing engagements in 13 bankruptcy cases through unlawful improper disclosures to the applicable bankruptcy courts and by an alleged pay-to-play scheme of exclusive introductions between existing clients and lawyers. J. Alex sued as assignee of the claims purportedly held by Alex Partners. 
The Second Circuit panel concluded unanimously that Alex's allegations against McKenzie are adequate to allow the case to proceed. The opinion does not determine whether such allegations are in fact true, leaving such questions for future proceedings. Of note, the opinion stresses Article Three Court's responsibility to, quote, ensure the integrity of the bankruptcy court and its processes, stating that, quote, if McKenzie's conduct has corrupted the process of engaging senior bankruptcy advisors, as Alex plausibly alleges, then the unsuccessful participants in that process are directly harmed. The opinion goes on to say that because the case invokes the court's supervisory responsibilities, which is atypical, it bears little application to ordinary RICO cases where the court's responsibilities are not, quote, front and center. And that in light of these special considerations, the court holds that Alex has plausibly alleged proximate cause. According to the opinion, quote, the allegations in the complaint about specific cases, when combined with the unusually detailed allegations regarding Alex's meetings with McKinsey's Dominic Barton, one of which allegedly led to Barton admitting McKinsey's role and participation in an illegal scheme and supposed agreement to take steps to end that scheme, easily raise a strong inference of fraud. Top Red Stories this week included, Asana retail debtors to seek confirmation of original plan without voided releases. Debtors disagree with district court ruling but shift focus to preserving fully implemented plan transactions. Goldman continues to press for dismissal of BNA's tortious interference suit, maintains BNA is unable to allege improper motive or improper means. American Airlines, encouraged by recent booking trends after December drop, expects more efficient flying schedule in the second half of 2022. Trimark settlement with lenders may usher in new attacks on lender protections. National Cine Media Update, API Group Initiation, Ferreta Entertainment, Siena, and MI Windows and Doors Primary Reviews. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Good morning, everyone. It will be a busy and active week ahead, so let's get right to it. A two-week-long trial will kick off on Monday, January 24th in Philadelphia Energy Solutions, adversary proceeding to recover insurance proceeds in connection with the June 2019 explosion at their Girard Point refinery. We'll see much action in the LADAM Airlines debtors' cases this week. Closing arguments are slated for Monday, January 24th on the debtors' fleet claims settlements with Strategic Value Partners and Sculptor 6th Street joint venture Sajama Investments. And on Thursday, January 27th, the debtors will press for a disclosure statement approval. On Tuesday, January 25th, the Alpha LADAM management debtors will seek an extension of their exclusivity periods, along with approval of their disclosure statement to their liquidating plan. Johnson & Johnson subsidiary, LTL Management, will also have a hearing on disputed legal and financial professional retention applications. The hearing on all-year holdings settlement with downtown capital partners to recapitalize the non-debtor entity, all-year equity partners, will also be on Tuesday. On Thursday, January 27th, the Grupo Aeromexico debtors' contested plan is up for confirmation. We'll also see earnings reported on Thursday, January 27th by CNX Resources, Alliance Data Systems, and United States Steel. HeartGo's sale hearing will be on Friday, January 28th. That's it for me. Back to you in New York, where it's probably freezing or sweltering. For this week's Deep Dive, New York Senior Legal Analyst Kevin Arkart joins us to discuss recent developments in the Toys R Us creditor litigation, how they relate to broad shifts in the landscape of Delaware corporate law and third-party releases. All right, well, welcome to this week's Deep Dive. Um, today we have Kevin Urquhart, Senior Legal Analyst for America's Court Credit. And Kevin's coming on today to talk a little bit about the, the Toys R Us litigation um, from way back in 2018, from the case of 2018, um, where there was a new development this week um, there was a motion to di- motion. I think it was a motion for summary judgment that had been filed. And to give you a little bit of background on the litigation, 
It had been filed by this tr- a trust called the True Creditor Litigation Trust. And the, there was a, it was a lawsuit filed against the director and officer defendants seeking over, I think, approximately $1.34 billion in claims asserted against them. And the claims were arising out of the, uh, the bankruptcy, the $3 billion, $3 billion dip, and um, the, the, primary, the primary set of claims that they had asserted were fiduciary duty claims against the officers and directors, and they had characterized the dip financing strategy as foolish, ill-considered, and a selfish gamble. And, um, and, and, and the defendants actually included uh, the former CEO and directors from KKR, Bain, and Vornado. So, and, and I, although it's interesting in its own right, Kevin, I think, I think you, um, you wanted to talk about how the, this litigation is, is a, a harbinger of bigger things to come in terms of you know, DNO litigation and bankruptcies. Yeah, well, yeah, th- thanks, David. I mean, to me, and maybe maybe it's my background as a guy who came up representing creditors and committees and uh, and investors and, and claims buyers who, who brought litigation and, and my role as sort of the head of the, the litigation, regulatory and legislative sort of sub-product in Reorg Americas. But um, I think there's been some recent developments that make this case very important for a possible, I don't want to say renaissance, but a, maybe a resurrection of the bankruptcy litigation uh, matter. I mean, I, I'm old enough to have, have come out of law school in 2000 and to have seen cases in which, you know, large cases in which the directors and officers did not get non-debtor releases as part of a plan of reorganization if someone objected. I mean, that was the standard way of doing things. And over the last seven, eight, nine years, the non-debtor release has been so, has become so ubiquitous in Chapter 11 plans, especially in favor of management officers and directors and advisors, you know, law, pre-petition law firms, accounting firms. Um, there has been a real dearth of meaningful DNO litigation coming out of bankruptcy cases. Again, you know, when a, when a plan gets confirmed and says nobody can sue these guys, um, it obviously puts a damper on those kind of suits being brought. I, I think there's a couple other factors in the sort of decline of this kind of litigation. First, um, the Delaware courts, and you know, most of these companies are are incorporated or formed in Delaware, and so Delaware law and fiduciary duty applies. And there's a reason they're formed in Delaware. It's because uh, that state's statutes and and court decisions, the Chancery Court and the, the Supreme Court of Delaware, have tended to be very pro director and officer and management in litigation brought by shareholders and by creditors, going back to. Um, more than a decade ago with the Trenwick decision, which really trimmed down um, creditors' abilities to sue officers and directors for breaches of fiduciary duties and and up until very recently. So you, you had this combination of, of state, the, the substantive state law that governed these kind of claims became extremely unfriendly for these lawsuits. Um, and then these companies would go through bankruptcy and they would receive the officers and directors would get releases. And of course, there's a little interplay there. You know, maybe one of the reasons why 
larger creditors um, that felt unhappy with the way the company was run into bankruptcy and got less than they wanted in the bankruptcy, they may not have pushed as hard against giving those releases out because they saw the state law was going against them. They saw the Delaware court um, applying the business judgment rule very, very loosely and refusing to apply um, the fairness standard to apparently insider transactions, that kind of thing. And they said, maybe they'll just um, not worry about the releases in the bankruptcy case. Then in, in the last few months, you have had a reversal or, or a, a trend in favor of the litigants, the plaintiffs, on both of those points. You have, as we've seen, you know, we talked about it a, a lot this week and, and it came up last week. And, and of course, it came up even earlier, December 6th, with the Purdue decision. There is an apparent pullback in at least district court judges sitting in appeal of bankruptcy judges, um, willingness to allow third party releases to be approved in, in bankruptcy plans, especially the Asina case is, is a fascinating example. You can say Purdue is sort of a one-off. Um, there was a lot of political pressure there. It's a mass tort case. You've got a very sympathetic group of dissenting plaintiffs who don't want their claims against the Sackler family released in the Sackler family or a uniquely um, villainous <laughs> gang, at least a for plaintiffs to, to make the argument that they're villainous. Um, not every set of officers and directors has a series on uh, Hulu or Netflix talking about their uh, eccentricities and behavior. Um, so you, you have the Asina case, though, is a, is a different situation. This is a situation where this is the old Ann Taylor Loft retail company, where the company is sold in Chapter 11, and then the plan gets confirmed, and it has the usual releases for the officers and directors, including releases of an existing securities fraud class action against them, against them brought by shareholders. Plan gives nothing to the shareholders, um, but it does impose a non-debtor release on them unless they opt out. Judge Hennikins, the judge in Richmond, um, as most bankruptcy judges would, I don't, I don't think he is unique in this respect in any way. Most mega case bankruptcy judges approve those kind of releases um, out of hand. It's, it's a matter of debtors counsel saying to them, look, you know, we needed to get management on board with this restructuring plan. If we didn't offer them releases, they wouldn't have been. And so if they don't get their releases, the plan goes away. Um, that all went according to plan. The stay pending appeal was denied by the district judge, Judge Novak in Richmond. And then on December 20th, two weeks after Purdue, he held an oral argument and, and slammed the releases directly, um, expressing his um, frankly, I, I have to say he was upset or disappointed at the bankruptcy judges in Richmond giving out these releases. He was not happy with the amount of fees that the that the counsel for the bankruptcy estate were charging. I mean, it was a, a scathing oral argument. And then last Friday, he um, he entered his order and he was even more scathing. He, he threw the releases out, rejected this necessity argument that the debtors make in all of these cases about, um, you know, if we don't give out these releases, management won't go along. Um, and and he not only did that, but he refused to send the case back to Judge Hennikins in Richmond, basically saying, I think the Richmond judges have besmirched the uh, good name of bankruptcy courts everywhere by doing this and assign the case to a judge outside of Richmond for remand. And then this week, uh, the debtors came back and said, well, I know we said that, um, that 
this was a, these releases were essential to the plan and that nothing would get done without them and they couldn't be severed but we're gonna we're gonna go along with that now they're gonna get the plan confirmed without the releases for the officers and directors so it's it, that case is really interesting because unlike purdue it's just a run-of-the-mill bankruptcy case i mean a lot of bankruptcy cases involve claims against officers and directors and also against say you know private equity sponsors for drawing fees out of the estate the directors that the private equity sponsors appointed. These lawsuits are common to Chapter 11 cases. So in many ways, it could have a bigger impact than the Purdue decision. So David, going going back to, yeah, I, go ahead. Sorry, just sorry to interrupt. It, it's, it's well beyond the, uh, already it's well beyond the mega case sphere because I cover middle market cases. And I'm, I mean, just before this conversation, I was working on a story about a middle market case where you know you had a run of the mill sort of release objection from a uh, a credit you know a creditor equity holder um, that you see all the time, but um, in response, well, I, I in response because under their circumstances they filed the the debtors filed a whole new DS, and the only the only material change was language saying that if the releases get modified. The settling parties, the UCC, you know, the main secured creditors, reserve the right to walk away. That was the only difference. So <laughs> yeah. um, you could feel but, it moving everywhere. I, and I mean, it, and that standard look, that's that's new language, but that's the point. That's been the the line from debtors' counsel throughout the sort of great non-debtor release era is that these releases are essential to the plan. And there's a jurisdictional hook there so that the judge can say it's a core proceeding because it's essential to confirmation. Um, And there is a practical hook there, which is without giving out these releases, um, deals don't get done. And and there's a danger there because if without these releases, these deals don't get done, you know, the judge in Asena, Judge Novak, essentially called the debtor's bluff and said, I don't believe you. And if it's, and then the debtors sort of showed their cards and yeah, they, they, he was right not to believe them. They're going ahead with confirmation without those releases. But the point is if they're not bluffing and it's true that the inability to grant these non-debtor releases would actually prevent chapter 11 cases from getting filed and restructurings from being successful, then this is a dire situation. I mean, we could be seeing the end of the non-debtor release could be the end of chapter 11 in many ways. Because again, you know, so many companies file with litigation against the officers and directors and the sponsors. Of course, the officers and directors and the sponsors are the ones who choose whether to file the case. Um, and if a company is on the fence, they're not facing immediate collection efforts or inability to meet payroll or one of those emergencies. And you're pitching the general counsel on whether to file a bankruptcy case. And he says, well, why should we file? If we can maybe get a deal done outside of bankruptcy, but I'm I'm going to get sued anyway. So what what good's Chapter Eleven to me? It's just a lot of expenses and a lot of trouble. The releases are in many ways a, an important selling point of the Chapter Eleven case. And again, this is if this is true. And, and bring it back to Toys R Us. I, I have always been sort of of the belief that it is not true that it, the releases are not essential to Chapter Eleven restructurings deals got done and and restructuring was accomplished very successfully before these releases became a big deal. There were plenty of big cases where the officers and directors didn't get releases. 
got sued, defended those lawsuits, and they, they relied on that friendly Delaware law we're talking about. Um, and Toys R Us is a good example of that. There were no releases for the officers and directors, and a litigation trust was formed backed by some big creditors um, to sue them. And you know, the case got done. The case got confirmed. We've got this litigation, and what you see in the, the motion for summary judgment that was filed by the D's and O's and in the true trust case is the arguments that officers and directors have made before the non-debtor release era. They're arguing that um, the bankruptcy court's approval of the dip insulates it um, from insulates them from being liable for entering into it, that it was entered into good faith. And, and they're arguing that the, the UCC and other creditors going along with the dip is evidence that it is reasonable and in good faith. They're arguing all of the usual uh, breach of fiduciary duty state law defenses. Um, it's not the end of the world. This, these are all perfectly valid arguments that, that debtors made and um, that, I'm sorry, officers and directors made in cases where there were no releases and the sky didn't fall back then. So I, I tend to think that those release cases, I, I think they may be doom for the Mastport case. Um, there's no question there's a difference between a case like Toys R Us, where the directors and officers are being sued for essentially um, what the plaintiffs view is a, a poor restructuring strategy. It's similar to, to the Sears case, right? There were, there were no releases in Sears as well. And the debtors are suing Eddie Lampert and his companies for having ladled on debt in a desperate attempt to save the company that was doomed to fail and they and saying they would have been better off just filing for bankruptcy first. What we in the in the pre-release days used to call deepening insolvency. Um, so these these cases are out there and they show us that you know not having non-debtor releases does not prevent you from having a successful restructuring. Um, Sears price, I, I think so the price may have gone up. Well exactly. Right. Well, and you, you're going to have to do more convincing for officers and directors. <laughs> Again, they've gotten the part of the, I guess, the counter to that is officers and directors in, in ordinary cases have gotten used to getting this and not getting it as something that um, is taking away a benefit. It's always harder to take away something than, than to tell them you can't get it. And you used to tell the officers and directors, well, you probably can't get that release if a big creditor objects unless you're putting in some cash into the estate. I mean, that used to be the non-debtor release hallmark was they had to put in some money. They'd buy the release net. And, and we got away from that. But it's a different story to say, well, you know, last month you could have gotten a release and, uh, and this month you can't. Um, but what's really interesting, though, also is that the other angle on this, and I'm you know, talking about what killed or, or at least seriously, seriously wounded beyond a, a flesh wound. You know, we're, we're talking about the knight from Monty Python, no arms, no legs. What really harmed the, this litigation as well was the Delaware law. And there has been some cases coming out of Delaware recently um, on the Caremark rule. And I'll tell you what that means in a second. But um, there has been some loosening of of court's willingness to throw these suits out. Um, Caremark, a Caremark claim under Delaware law means that you're suing the, the directors for not supervising management, for not paying enough attention. That's a very common form of breach of fiduciary, fiduciary duty suit 
against directors. Um, and there have been some decisions. There have been was a Bluebell ice cream decision from the Chancery Court, a Boeing decision. Um, there's a McDonald's case pending. There has been an increasing amount of success in these cases. So, you know, th- this sort of I'm, I'm going back and forth from being a devil's advocate to the sky is falling. The end of the non-debtor release is the end of Chapter 11 to the other way, which is I don't think it's all that essential to well, if, if Delaware law gets tougher and um, and there is a higher risk of li- of actual liability for these guys and they can't get a release in bankruptcy, then the loss of the release could be a serious problem. So I, th- I think it's interesting. I think I guess my 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 coming back to the beginning view on this is that we may be seeing this these cases increase because debtors aren't getting release, getting releases for their management and their officers and directors and their sponsors. And the, the case, the state law case against these uh, defendants may be getting a little uh, stronger than it used to be. Um, it's still there. Delaware is still a tough place to sue management or directors or, sh- or controlling shareholders. Um, I think there's a couple other factors that play into this. When chapter 11 is slow, like it is now, people turn to litigation. Um, lawyers and professionals are more willing to spend time on, and money on litigation when there isn't another restructuring around the corner. Um, and right now it's slow. And so people will turn to thinking about these claims. And I think that investors will also do that. The funds, our subscribers and others will um, look to invest in litigation situations when they cannot invest in straight up restructuring situations. Um, there's also a lot of litigation funding out there. A lot of money is being made available by, by hedge funds and others to fund these kind of lawsuits, try to get through the motion to dismiss and try to get a big settlement from a DNO insurance company. So um, again, I, I may be the hammer seeing nails everywhere as, as the guy at Reorg who did litigation, but uh, it seems to me like this may be a bigger issue for us going forward. There may be more and more of these lawsuits against officers and directors surviving both Chapter 11 and the motion to dismiss um, in the Delaware courts or, or in the bankruptcy court. And Toys R Us will be an interesting test of that. The, the, um, the litigating trust has responded to that motion for summary judgment. I think someone's writing it, as, it up as we speak. Um, and they, they are making some pretty decent arguments. And what's even more fascinating is that case is in front of Judge Phillips in Richmond. <laughs> so it, it's sort of in his person, in, in the city of Richmond, in the 804, you're seeing uh, these trends sort of converge. And uh, it could be really interesting to see come Richmond spelling the end of the non-debtor release as well as... Um, a, a watering down of the protections for officers and directors who lead a company into bankruptcy and expect a thank you rather than to get sued over it. Do, do you think that the shift both on the bankruptcy side and the Delaware side is just, I don't know, your natural kind of pendulum shift, be, you know, mom, the momentum eventually goes the other way, or are there any specific things that are happening that have happened? You know, pu- purely speculation. I, I think that the non-debtor release issue has to be, I can't imagine that that the the Purdue decision and the Asena decision and the non-debtor release um, threats going on now are free 
are, are not at, at some level influenced by the political and media criticism of the Purdue case of the Purdue case. And, and I mean, you have, you have a growing number of mass tort debtors. I mean, bankruptcy has become the place to resolve large tort situations for, for various reasons, the class action system and the MDL system outside of bankruptcy have been unable to bring things like opioids um, to a resolution. So you have Purdue, you have Mallinckrodt, you have Boy Scouts of America, which you, which you know about more than me as a middle market guy. You have the USA Gymnastics case. And all of these um, cases have generated a tremendous amount of heat from the media and from Senator Elizabeth Warren and, and even some Republicans. And we've covered some congressional hearings where they brought in some gymnasts. They brought in opioid survivors and the parents of opioid victims and children. Um, they make a compelling argument. And, and you just may have a situation where the mass tort, the heat that was brought in the bankruptcy system from all of these mass tort cases. And I, I should mention LTL management, of course, the Johnson and Johnson two-step. That's another factor. Um, the heat on the system from these tort cases is going to affect your average, everyday, private equity-sponsored Chapter 11 restructuring, where the non-debtor release has been um, thrown out with the bathwater of the, the Purdue case, um, and you've got trouble for just everyday restructurings where maybe the management's accused of borrowing too much or borrowing too much secured or something like that. Um, it's getting caught up in that in that environment. There's also, there, there was an article that I read on Bloomberg Law, an excellent article um, by Lydia Bayud and Alex Wolf. And uh, I don't know if Lydia is listening, but I apologize if I pronounced your name wrong from January 18th, that really got me thinking about this, about ESG pressure being an issue and, and an increasing tolerance in Delaware for, um, for shareholder activism because of the emphasis on ESG investing. And uh, I think that, um, you know, there is some pendulum swinging to that, right? The question is, you know, chicken or the egg? Is the pendulum swinging because it swung too far in the other direction and created all of these good policy arguments for going um, back in the other direction? Or is it just a sort of natural cycle? Um, it's interesting. I don't I, I don't think anybody expected a lot of these decisions from the current Article 3 judiciary. So it's been surprising and interesting, and I think it'll continue to be so. And as a guy who covers uh, bankruptcy-related litigation, I'm I'm thrilled. <laughs> I mean, you 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 know, you raise so many so many interesting points. I mean, it, it's this strikes right at the heart of uh, corporate behavior in general, right? You can't if you can't run into bankruptcy or you can't hide in the Delaware law. Um, maybe maybe the end the the end result is a change, a fundamental change in corporate behavior, like you said with the ES, the ESG issue too, right? That, that's a yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too idealistic about it. I, I'm not sure that bankruptcy, that the the mass tort bankruptcy or the current um, permissive attitude about corporate wrongdoing. Although I think you know Purdue may be wrongdoing. Toys R Us, it's really um, economic favoritism to one group of creditors over another. I don't want to, I don't want to equate those two things. I don't think that chapter 11 is shoring up a corrupt system. Um, I think that, that 
chapter 11 judges handling mass tort cases do it with good intentions. They feel like it's the only way to resolve these massive situations. At the same time, it's really about rebalancing the risk of running a company, um, both the Delaware situation and the non-debtor releases. At some point, someone maybe needs to be held responsible financially. Some individual human being needs to be held responsible, or group of them needs to be held responsible financially for um, the failure of a corporation. Um, There is a sense perhaps in on the left side of the aisle that being a CEO of a corporation is a risk-free gig. It is a no-lose situation. You get paid a ton. If you screw up, you put the company in bankruptcy or or and get a releases, then you get bonuses. Um, like you know, Malincrot, you had these these guys running this company since 2013, and they're they're getting bankruptcy bonuses and they'll probably get a parachute out of that case if the judge approves the non-debtor releases. Um, and that's pending. We're waiting every day for Judge Dorsey to issue that decision. Um, there's a view out there that um, if you're getting paid like a CEO, you, you ought to have some skin in the game. There ought to be risk to you. And um, who knows, maybe that this is a rebalancing of that. At the very least, you know, you have to say shareholders or creditors, if not this sort of society at large, needs to f- need to feel like the people running these corporations eventually have to answer for what they do and the choices they make financially um, if they're going to be vastly rewarded for um, making good decisions. So, uh, you know, it's, it is, it's fascinating. There's some business ethics stuff in here. I'm just an unfrozen caveman bankruptcy lawyer, so I'm not qualified to talk about that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are, there's a lot of people talking about problems with the judiciary, but this may be an area where you see that um, the judiciary bends and tugs and it's not always going rightward or leftward. It's there are areas of, uh, of anti anti-corporate um, decisions and pro-corporate decisions. And it's rarely ever as simple as the partisan um, folks would, would like to depict it. Um, and this may be a good example of that, of, of an interesting area developing that is hard to characterize from a political standpoint, but it does serve um, the public interest. So it'll be interesting to see how all this stuff shakes out. I, I think there's a reason why there's a lot of empty bankruptcy judge seats right now. <laughs> um, it, it's tough. I would not want to be a bankruptcy judge having to handle a Purdue case or a Mallinckrodt case or even a, a lawsuit against the directors of Toys R Us for not filing bankruptcy soon enough or picking a dip that was too big. So uh, there's a lot of difficult decisions ahead for for the guy, the, the women and men on the bench. But, but so, interestingly enough, those Article Three judges are are going ahead and making those decisions. Maybe maybe it's going to revive the Article Three bankruptcy judge discussion. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, well, oh wow! Well, wow! I mean. Uh, <laughs> That's not crazy oh, here. Oh boy. I mean I I guess my preference would be that they that they return bankruptcy judges to the way they were back in the day um rather than than building them into article 3 judges but you know if if they did that if they said bankruptcy judges here's where it comes down to and and here's where we'll we'll wrap up with you know sort of bringing that philosophical discussion back to earth if bankruptcy judges can't give non-debtor releases 
so that a settlement of, of opioid of tens of thousands of trillions of dollars in opioid litigation in, in Purdue or Mallinckrodt can be resolved in one place, how's it ever going to get resolved? <laughs> the answer is probably in the legislature, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So it's uh, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous game that Article Three judges are playing by reining in those bankruptcy judges. By doing that, they're they may be unconsciously putting more responsibility on themselves to to actually solve these problems. And we'll see if they take that up. Absolutely, well, it's fascinating all around, and I'm sure there's going to be way more to cover on this. So, Kevin, you know, thanks for coming on. We're going to have you back for the next development in this. I think. I, I mean, I, I'm I, I'm pretty sure that. Uh, there's going to be more coming down the pipeline. Oh yeah. Yeah. Things, things just suddenly got interesting and it's nice. Anytime, David, anytime you want me to talk. I will. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rearg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.